First, we are ending the riots and lawlessness that has spread throughout our country. We will end it now. Today, I have strongly recommended to every governor to deploy the National Guard in sufficient numbers that we dominate the streets. Mayors and governors must establish an overwhelming law enforcement presence until the violence has been quelled. If a city or state refuses to take the actions that are necessary to defend the life and property of their residents, then I will deploy the United States military and quickly solve the problem for them. All right. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. And here we go with our coverage of America under siege this morning. That, of course, is the voice of U.S. President Donald Trump speaking last night after another night of mayhem on the streets of America. And you heard him vow there to send in the U.S. military onto the streets of American cities to restore order we've got wonderful coverage great coverage uh, coming up for you today on the on this topic we got a, a lot of fantastic guests lined up including my first guest cash heed he is the former solicitor general for british columbia former police chief i'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show hi cash good morning mike Th- thanks a lot for coming on let's let's start first of all i'm interested in your take on how this all started with the death of george floyd and that that chokehold i guess effectively when that police officer was had his knee on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes. We've seen the autopsies now that he died of asphyxiation. Uh, the police officer involved is now charged with murder. What went through your mind when you when you saw that video? There's absolutely no justification for that force whatsoever. I don't know why he didn't reassess continually, even if he used that force, to ensure this individual was not suffering. There is no way, uh, only in America, can you, in full public view, kill a black man and maybe get arrested later. He should have been arrested right on the scene. The other three officers should have intervened. They had a duty to do so because of what a crime was being committed, and they did not intervene. So we don't teach our police officers to do that. Matter of fact, and this is quite telling, there's a chief of police nearby that after he saw the video, went to every roll call training and said to his officers, if you think this is okay, there's the door. This is not a job for you. Okay, that is a tactic. Putting a, a police officer, putting a knee onto the neck of someone being restrained, is, is that a move or a tactic that is ever condoned? Is that, is that taught to police officers, first no. of all, anywhere? No. No, it is not. Okay, that should never be used. Never. Never. Matter of fact, there's other things that took place that should have never, ever happened if these police officers were fulfilling what they were sworn to do. Do you think those other police officers should be charged as well? They will be. I'm uh, quite certain they will be. I'm not sure uh, what the charge will be. Uh, the the debate going on right now is uh, they were police officers doing their job or were they doing their job? I don't think they were because we saw a actual crime taking place and they did not intervene, whether they're charged with accessory or some other uh, criminal charge, and I'm sure there'd be administration uh, charges against them also. 
Speaking to Kashid, BC's former Solicitor General, he's a former police chief. Cash, you were also in, involved with the Vancouver Police Department's crowd control unit during your, your police career. Let's talk about what we're seeing on the streets of America right now. And there's scrutiny of uh, police tactics here as they deal with looters and also, and also protesters as well. We've seen more controversy here with police tactics uh, as we see police using rubber bullets on protesters, tear gas, pepper spray. Uh, bystanders and journalists uh, being being hit by police. Uh, we've seen a lot of disturbing footage online. What what are your thoughts on the way this is being handled from well, like a crowd control perspective? Well, number one, uh, they do have to create a healthy balance here of suppressing the uh, violence that's taking place, intervening in some of the property damage, and then preventing it going forward. Now, the goal of the police is not to stop the protest. The goal of the police is to stop the violence and damage that is taking place. So they have to make sure that they have policies in place and utilize suppression uh, activities and then intervention activities and then preventing it from going forward. It can be done at the same time or it can be done individually, but your goal is uh, to stop the violence. What about police using batons, tear gas, pepper spray, rubber bullets? Is this justified in the situation as you're seeing it on, on TV every night? I've watched it uh, over the last seven nights, and I can tell you in certain circumstances it is justified, but I can tell you one, which is the most recent, yesterday in front of the White House, where in fact yeah. you had peaceful demonstrators, protesters standing in the area that was designated for them, and then there was a ultimate show of force by police agencies and the military and the utilization of tear gas, batons, horses, and rubber bullets to clear a path for this president to have a photo op. That is not the proper use of police resources, and it's not the proper use of force to deal with protesters. We'll be talking more about that on the show this morning here. What about uh, when you hear Trump in, in the clip that we just played calling on state mayors, governors, and other officials that police must dominate the streets, that there must be overwhelming law enforcement presence to deal with this and put down, the, put down this violence. Do you, agree, do you agree with his language there, or do you, his, no. the tactics that he's outlining? No, his, his uh, language that he's using to deal with this situation is adding fuel to the fire. Matter of fact, you've heard other police chiefs, the police chief of Houston said, why doesn't he just shut up? And you're hearing that, those echoes by other leaders throughout the country, whether they're in policing or in uh, politics. And I think he has to change the language here. If uh, y your listeners had an opportunity to watch Joe Biden this morning, yeah. a stark difference and how he's approaching this, and how uh, this president, current president, is uh, dealing with it in the United States. What about his threat to deploy the U.S. military on the streets of America? He said he's ready to deploy thousands and thousands of heavily armed soldiers onto American uh, streets. You're a cop. I mean, if you heard uh, a prime minister or someone say that the, they were going to deploy uh, armed soldiers onto the streets of a city that you were in charge of patrolling as a police chief, what, we, what would your reaction be I'd to be that? I'd be totally opposed to it. Totally opposed to it. You don't utilize uh, the armed forces against your people in a sovereign nation. Absolutely not. We are not in a dictatorship. We are in a democratic society. And this individual that's the president of the United States has to realize that he's not like an autocratic leader in some of the other countries. What, do you think police have become too militarized? 
not only in the United States, but in Canada, when we see a lot of police forces deployed now, we see them in riot gear, we see them in heavily armed vehicles. And there's a, a lot of scrutiny and questions about that, that police are looking too much like a military force. Do you think that's true? Well, I think they have to utilize their uh, prevention techniques. I think the success of police is going to be how they prevent these issues, prevent the violence, prevent crime, not on how they respond to it. And how they respond to it in uh, this particular fashion is, again, in my opinion, too militarized. However, uh, there are times that you need that equipment, that you need those resources to uh, deal with it, but this certainly is not the time for it. You need that healthy balance put in place uh, to deal with this situation. We have our own problems here in Canada. If you have to look at the Aboriginal problems that we have, that could be our black community here in Canada, and it has to be more of a balanced approach to deal with it, not a militaristic, uh, you know, aggressive approach. It has to be assertive, Mike, but it cannot be aggressive. Thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. All right, welcome back. Uh, as we continue talking about events south of the border in the United States, pleased to welcome James Moore now, the former Conservative MP, Port Moody, Westwood, Port Coquitlam. He served in the cabinet of then Prime Minister Stephen Harper. He's a former federal industry minister. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. James, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Uh, you've been a consistent watcher of events south of the border, and I've been following you on Twitter, and you've been quite critical of, of the Trump regime for, for a long time. What do you think about what's unfolding uh, today? Well, it's just heartbreaking. You know, I'm a, I'm, I love the United States. I love America. I'm, I'm a, you know, obviously a student of history like you are and, and student of the presidency. I mean, I've, I've been to the Reagan National Library a number of times. I've been to the Richard Nixon Presidential Library, the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library. Um, and, and just to see the devolution of the presidency under Donald Trump to me is just heartbreaking uh, as, a, as a fan of the United States and, and as a believer in the importance of sturdy, principled, decent leadership in a time of crisis to see Donald Trump fail day in, day out, day in, day out is, is just shattering. I, I was reading the, the uh, introductory part to David Frum's new book uh, yeah. about Donald Trump, and there was a quote in there from George Will, Pulitzer Prize winning columnist in the United States, and it was a, it was a quote from a column that he wrote just prior to the 2016 uh, election, right just before Election Day, where he, he, he argues basically in, in the piece that you know, whatever happens on election day, America will be fine. Everything will be fine. The politicians come, politicians go. It's not a big deal. And now we know that that's quite not true. Um, you know, when when leadership fails in a time of crisis, that the scars that are left last can last a generation. Um, you know, after Richard Nixon, that was true. Frankly, in this country, after Pierre Trudeau, that was true. You still see in Quebec, Jim Souvien on the license plates. You, you know, we had the rise of the obsession about uh, constitutional reconciliation in Canada for for decades after Pierre Trudeau and and the patriation of our constitution and the way it was done and the arrogance about it and so there are times where leadership and the consequences of it lasts a really long time and in the United States you watch what's happening with Donald Trump and it's not that his his policy has nothing to do frankly with his policies one can agree with Donald Trump's policies on taxation or even on trade or what right. have you, you can agree. It's the cultural divide. It's the, it's the indecency. It's the ugliness. It's the, it's the cat calls on, and, uh, on Twitter. It's the demeaning of people. It's the spectacle that we saw last night of instigating, instigating a fight with peaceful protesters so that he could have a photo op so he can stand in front of a church and hold up a Bible that he's clearly never read and clearly never has lived by. So he can hold up a Bible as some kind of a 
dog whistle signal to certain supporters of its coalition base that he's still with them in spite of what they like. It's it, it's just a bizarre failing of leadership that will leave scars for a really long time. Right. When you mentioned some of the historical context of this, and you're a student of history, a lot of people have compared what's going on right now and saying, is this the the worst year we've seen in American history since maybe going back to 1968 and the assassinations that we saw of, of Martin Luther King? And it, it's funny that you, you bring up Richard Nixon, because I wonder if Trump in some ways is almost channeling Nixon. Like I was looking at Trump's Twitter feed this morning, and he had a tweet about an hour ago that said, silent majority. In all, in all capital letters, which, of course, was kind of one of Nixon's catchphrases. And I wonder mm. if, if he's thinking that this turmoil that he seems to be fanning the flames of, if he thinks this is going to work for him on a law and order message in, uh, with an election coming up in the fall. Uh, it, it, it might. Look, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not in, I'm not ignorant about the possibility of politics. I mean, you know, Hillary Clinton had a 99% likelihood of winning two hours before the polls closed. So, you know, who knows how these things ultimately will, will break out. And all we, we often forget in politics, elections are not referendums on the incumbent. Elections are choices amongst options. And the way you win an election is that you stay united, you fire up your base and you get it out and you divide the opposition. And Joe Biden still has to collect his base, fire them up, and divide the Republican Party. The Republican Party didn't seem terribly divided around Donald Trump's leadership. Right. They seem to like him a lot. And the more offensive right. that he is and the more that he angers people, the more that they like him. The problem is that that, that may seem fun to antagonize and energize and, and to, frankly, piss off people that you hate. That might seem fun. But it's horrific leadership, it's horrific statecraft, and you leave the country more divided and worse off in the long run. And isn't that the goal, shouldn't that be the goal, of political leaders is to not leave the country in, in tatters? And they don't seem to care. They seem to be enjoying the fact that they're antagonizing and hating the media, antagonizing urban elites, antagonizing the African-American community. They don't seem to care. As long as they're pissing off people they don't like. Yeah. They don't really care about the long-term consequences of it. And no. leaders should emerge in these moments and, and lead past these moments and through these moments, not take them as moments to wedge and, and divide. You're right. The politics of this could mean net-net. I mean, it may seem bizarre to, as, as we observe this today, but net-net, this may be good for Donald Trump, you know, picking a fight with protesters, us against them, you know, and, and all that. And if Joe Biden isn't able to rally the the majority against right. Donald Trump and inspire them with his leadership, then, you know, the, all these people who are protesting and who are angry about the, the, the murder of George Floyd and who are angry about the status quo, well, if, if they don't register to vote and they don't stand in those lines on November 3rd and if they don't get out and vote, all right. this protesting and all this noise means nothing. We just, got, we just got about two minutes left here, James. But speaking of Joe Biden, Biden gave a speech this morning, and I think Biden's been kind of taking too low a profile, in, in my opinion, but maybe he starts to step it up now. He did a speech this morning. Here's a brief, uh, brief listen to what he had to say. <clears throat> okay. When peaceful yeah. protesters dispersed in order for a president, a president from the doorstep of the People's House, the White House, using tear gas and flash grenades in order to stage a photo op, a photo op in one of the most historic churches in the country, or at least in Washington, D.C. Okay, as Biden speaking this morning, do you think Biden is being effective? He was in that clip, but he certainly needs to show more of it, and, and he needs to show the energy that people look for in a president, because there's a lot of work to be done in the post-Trump era, whether that's this fall or, or four years from now. Um, We'll see. I don't know that this is the worst year in American history. That would 
that would say a lot. I mean, this is a country that's been through civil war and so on. But certainly last week was maybe the worst week of my lifetime. You know, 100,000 deaths. The economy is still in free fall. Uh, Pandemic is still having a grip and numbers are still climbing in a lot of states. You had that horrible incident of Joe Scarborough being accused of being involved in, in the murder of a former staffer. You had a racist incident in Central Park with a woman threatening to call the police on an African-American man. And then George Floyd and the riots after that. It's pretty dark times, pretty sad times. And it's pretty heartbreaking to see it happen in the United States. And those of us who love the United States and all that it's done for the world, you know, we, we hope and, and pray that they rally and move forward and get past this. But, um, you know, okay. anybody who had any any inkling of of thought that Donald Trump will be part of the solution has been exposed here because the man is a, is a failure and a disgrace. Thanks for coming on with your thoughts. Appreciate it. Thank you. Welcome back as we continue talking about the events south of the border. And let's talk about Donald Trump's uh, Bible photo op now. We saw this unfold in Washington yesterday as we saw police uh, move uh, nonviolent protesters away from St. John's Episcopal Church across the street from the White House And it quickly became apparent after that why the police had moved those protesters out. They were firing rubber bullets to move the protesters out of the way. It was uh, apparently because Trump wanted to go over there for a photo op. So we saw this extraordinary uh, sequence where Trump left the White House, walked over to this church, and I thought he was going to go inside the church and pray for inspiration or something. But no, it was to do a photo op outside holding up a Bible. Now, have a listen to this. This is Bishop Marion Edgar Budd. She is the Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese in Washington. She's responsible for that church. And here is her reaction to Trump's Bible photo op there. Uh, The president just used a Bible, the most sacred text of the Judeo-Christian tradition, and one of the churches of my diocese, without permission, as a backdrop for a message antithetical to the teachings of Jesus and everything that our churches stand for. And to do so, as you just said, he sanctioned the use of tear gas by police officers in riot gear to clear the church guard. I am outraged. All right, let's check in now with Reverend Michael Corrin to talk about this. He's an Anglican church deacon, broadcaster, columnist, and writer. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Michael, thanks for coming on. What's a pleasure. What did you think about what you saw there last night with the president? I was watching on uh, on television, as many of us were, and I was incredulous, really. I, I was I was stunned. And we all know Donald Trump, and it's very difficult to be surprised by his antics anymore. But I was surprised. It, it was it was it was the juxtaposition, really, of the church and the the peaceful. Let's emphasize that the peaceful protesters, and then Trump walking across. Um, with all of the, the guards and security and weapons around him, and then just standing there, yeah. given a Bible as a prop. And I, I assumed, I think many of us did, that he would say something about peace and harmony, that he would go into the church and, and right. pray. It was merely uh, a photo op. And it's very interesting that uh, today, the White House, his people have already turned the whole thing into a video message to run during the election. Right. And we know that the, the bishop... Uh, was appalled at what happened. We've now found out that there were members of the clergy uh, who were tear-gassed. About 20 of them had gathered together to show support. They weren't from that church, but they were part of that denomination, which is also mine. They, they got together to show support for the for the peaceful protest, and they had been forcibly and physically removed. So at every level, this was crass, it was exploitative, it was anti-Christian, but 
I bet you, and I've already seen evidence of it, that it played into the hands of some on the evangelical and Catholic right who think that Trump is a strong man and the leader that they need. Sure. I think there was a couple of things going on there. There was some indication that Trump was angry about the criticism that he had, had endured after he, uh, his Secret Service people told him to put, go into the bunker, the underground fortified bunker in the White House during an earlier protest. And I think he wanted to be seen walking outside of the White House. So I think that was part of the political goal here and certainly mm-hmm. appealing to his evangelical base. Why do evangelical Christians uh, line up behind Trump in such overwhelming numbers, do you think? Oh, golly, give me two hours, we could talk about it. Um, The numbers are, and we must distinguish between white and black evangelicals. The vast majority of black evangelicals uh, didn't vote for Donald Trump. They voted Democrat. But 81% of white evangelicals voted Donald Trump, and the numbers seem to have remained about steady. Uh, Why do they vote for him? Well, there are those people who do believe that he is uh, a believer, uh, there are others who know he's not, but they think that he will enable them. They compare him to the Emperor Constantine, um, who wasn't a very good person in many ways, but did support the church. Um, he has become very uh, active and, and militant on the abortion issue. And the abortion issue, uh, for, for many on the Christian right, is the great lit- litmus test. Um, he's shown no support for equal marriage. He can't do much about that, but uh, again, that's another central issue for them. They, they, the history of the United States, they, they claim separation of church and state, but in fact, the whole country, there's a mingling of church and state. The light on the hill, America's a godly nation, and they see him as a man of strength, the military, uh, the, the, the church, patriotism. It's a very unpleasant combination, and it's unique. There is nowhere else in the world. Russia has an Orthodox Church that is very supportive of Putin, but actually the vast majority of Russian people have no particular religious affiliation. Europe is almost post-Christian in a way. I don't say that with any relish. And Canada is a fundamentally different country. But in the U.S. you do have this phenomenon, and Trump... And something else that has to be said, and because it's so ironic... Barack Obama has a very profound Christian faith. He takes it, I mean, I know this for a fact. I've spoken to one particular theologian. Obama canceled something so he could go and speak to this woman about faith. But he was attacked for being an atheist or a Muslim or, or whatever. Right. Trump, who almost without doubt has no religious faith at all, is revered by right-wing Christians you, as their champion. Do you think Trump has ever read the Bible? He, he says it's his favorite book. Yeah, well, that, it could be a pretty short list. Uh, <laughs> I'd, I have no window into his soul, but I would be very surprised if Donald Trump knew anything about what was in the Bible or even uh, what the Bible is. Well, let's have let's have a listen to this, Michael. This this is going back to the uh, d- the Republican primaries back when Trump was running for president, and during many of his speeches, he said he would hold up the Bible and he would say the Bible is his favorite book. So he's asked in this clip, have a listen to this, this is quite extraordinary, he's asked to name some of his favorite Bible verses, and uh, have a listen to what how Trump responded here. Okay. You mentioned the Bible, you've been talking about how it's your favorite book, and you said, I think last night in Iowa, some people are surprised that you say that. I'm wondering what one or two of your most favorite Bible uh, verses are well, and why. I, I wouldn't want to get into it, because to me that's very personal. You know, when I talk about the Bible, it's very personal, so I don't want to get into there's verses. No, there's I don't no want to get into... There's no, no verse that means I, a I lot just, to you that you think about or cite? The, the Bible means a lot to me, but I don't want to get into specifics. 
even to cite a verse that no, you like? No, I don't want to do that. You're I mean, an Old okay. Testament guy or a New Testament guy? Uh, probably equal. I think it's just an incredible, the whole Bible is an incredible, I joke uh, very much so. They always hold up the art of the deal. I say my second favorite book of all time. But uh, I just think the Bible is just something very special. <laughs> okay. He couldn't, Michael, he couldn't even name one verse yeah, out of his favorite ate, book. Yeah, you know, the, the dog ate my homework. <laughs> it, 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 look, no, how could anyone take this seriously? I, yeah. It's too perfect. Old New Testament, about equal. Uh, well, I mean, it, it, it's simply <laughs> not an answer. The Old Testament is huge text, and the New yeah. Testament is relatively small, and one informs the other and so on. But no, he, I, I've never met a Christian who couldn't name uh, something within the Bible that they particularly relish. He, no, I, I'm convinced he's never actually read it. And not all the people who support him on the Christian right are, are, are foolish. Some of them know this. And if you do go to their blogs and their websites, they, they, they will declare, yes, we know that he's probably not being honest and he's flawed, but mm -hmm. the alternative is a terrible liberal leader who, who will take away our rights and uh, our right to own guns, freedom of religion. Look, he did this churches were, were closed that they they weren't declared essential services fully understandable during coronavirus he then said that he would call governors and demand that they were opened he can't do that by the way he doesn't have that constitutional authority and then he and his attorney general said this was a war on religion you had governors some of whom are, are, are profound christian believers closing churches to protect people and they were, they were being accused of being anti-religious by Donald Trump. So he, he plays this game very cleverly. Do you think uh, Trump, his behavior is contrary to the teachings of Jesus Christ? Well, it's a rhetorical question. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, a man who did not condemn, the only people he criticized were those who tried to exploit and use and abuse religious authority, a man who, who who sang, who roared of, of love and justice and equality and forgiveness and tolerance and harmony. Yes, it's completely contrary. And, and the idea that peaceful, I don't mean violent people, that peaceful protesters would be yeah. tear gassed and yeah. shot at with rubber bullets so that he could stand in front of a church and exploit the Bible, that should sicken every believing Christian and, and every decent person. Michael, thank you for coming on today with your thoughts. Anytime. Take care. I, I, I appreciate it. That is Reverend Michael Corrin. He is an Anglican church deacon. He's a well-known broadcaster, columnist, and writer.